Hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of Nkata Podcast. And today I'm going to be having a conversation with a visual artist. His name is Ahmet Ogut. And uh, Ahmet Ogut is a... Wow, how will I even uh, describe him? But you know what? I don't want to do it's like a formal biography because I saw on his website that um, he wasn't into any of that. You know, so he just had one line about who he was. But then the rest that followed was... Uh, a lineup. When I say a lineup, it's like a lineup of exhibitions here and there. So Ahmed is here with me. I will let him introduce himself. So Ahmed, um, it's a pleasure to be part of your series, and uh, I'm glad we could do this before you go to Barcelona. And um, so yeah, just maybe maybe our first encounter in Amsterdam was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of an introduction. Without an introduction, which mm -hmm. we were just in the same setup, mm -hmm. talking to uh, participants of the Radical Kata program. Yeah. And we were uh, we were invited by a common friend. Mm -hmm. So that friend uh, knew both of us very well, but mm -hmm. um, we didn't know each other. So it was interesting. In that setup, without talking about ourselves, but talking to others, and through that, introducing ourselves mm -hmm. to each other was mm -hmm. quite interesting. And that's how I also do my work. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, rather than talking about myself, it's mm -hmm. always through others, mm -hmm. through other people, and also even looking at my own practice from outside, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty much like I had to develop that skill that I had to be an outsider in order to have a um, right way of looking at it. Although I spent quite a lot of time with my ideas and my works and my projects, mm -hmm. I knew that it's not the way to live. I need my references. I need that interaction with uh, public people, people around me, close friends and distant friends or people who I never met, but I could, you know, have a conversation with. I remember as I was researching that you were talking about how you wanted to be a painter and a renaissance painter, and, <laughs> by the way, but then it didn't work out that way. And then you found yourself in contemporary art. So can we just give a sense of how you, what you do and how you became? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'd studied art history in a way that I studied it, but I lived through it. It mm -hmm. was kind of a time, time travel journey because mm -hmm. they, they, when I was into renaissance art in high school, when I went to find art high school, which was the, the first one that has dedicated, that was dedicated in this uh, major Kurdish town mm -hmm. in, uh, in North Mesopotamia, uh, my hometown, it was a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, to be able to have an option like that instead of going to a normal state school mm -hmm. uh, because there was nothing else around. So we had to kind of invent an understanding of art. There was mm -hmm. very few books mm -hmm. that were dedicated to art mm -hmm. and we would be overexcited to reach them. Mm -hmm. And they were just like really limited also. Mm -hmm. whatever it was included so that's why it, it was just like we were doing reproductions of all these kind of different movements in the history and studying that but somehow without the context without the iconography like i was just impressed by the way the paintings were done during the renaissance times and later baroque times and that was my whole knowledge i had no idea contemporary art existed and this is like late 90s you know mm -hmm. you're in a place there's no museum there is no gallery there's no institution and uh, you just have to have imagination for the rest of it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm thinking that you come from, you know, Turkey. Yeah. And now you are working extensively within this part of, uh, of the world, which is Central um, Europe. So there's a, sort of like a crossing from East, so to speak, to West. And um, a lot of people listening now may not know or might take for granted the fact that much of how the history of uh, Europe yeah. and the West has turned out as 
as a result of that tension between the West and the East mm-hmm. that dates all the way back to many, many centuries ago. And much of that, much of that is sort of like happening today still, that tension. And your work has become this thing that is not about one particular thing or one particular place, but so many places and having very multifaceted, very multi-pronged, very, very layered. Mm-hmm. And it relies so much on going to places and discovering places. Is there something about how you were raised that sort of like contributes to the kind of artist and your practice today and the way you see art in general? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, you learn art through institutions, through art schools, through mm-hmm. through going to museums in Europe. People grow up going to museums and so mm-hmm. on. When you don't have any of that, I mean, I remember the first day they started the art department. My uncle was the first year student there. Mm-hmm. It was just two years before they started the art high school, mm-hmm. you know, fine art high, high school. So I just witnessed the the history was happening from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you were my generation, <laughs> grow up in Europe, mm-hmm. you, this is already done a long time ago, you mm-hmm. know, a few hundred years ago, maybe a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So you don't uh, witness, maybe your grand grandparents witness. So I feel like I lived through a few hundred years before mm-hmm. I actually moved to Europe mm-hmm. uh, uh, after 2007. And also before 2007, I never uh, had the chance to go outside of the country or spoke the language until 2004. Mm-hmm. So these things all came afterwards. Then nothing was given. Mm-hmm. And thinking about the museums, but I also knew you know, I come from, I call it uh, particularly Mesopotamia, North Mesopotamia, because geographically you would define contemporary way in a different way. Mm-hmm. But uh, historically speaking, uh, I knew the even the term we think museum mm-hmm. uh, comes from West. Mm-hmm. You know, the first museums comes from like late 1800. Uh, maybe the one, the earliest one in Rome, 500 years ago, mm-hmm. that was the first uh, Western version of it. But actually, 2,500 years ago in Mesopotamia, Babylon, in Babylon, they had a museum mm-hmm. with a v- female director. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so it's it is it is that kind of history that's rooted first university comes from there, first museum comes from there. Yeah. So deep somewhere I knew I had that knowledge because the, the only kind of artifacts I could see around was that. Mm-hmm. But all I wanted to be a Renaissance artist, you know, there was like <laughs> double wrong in there. Mm-hmm. You know that the source is probably there, but before you witness else, elsewhere, mm-hmm. you can't really prove it to yourself. Mm-hmm. So it was not like towards West directed kind of approach, but it was like you need to go back and forth to mm-hmm. understand the institutional structure, what we can learn from. So I I learned a lot up front through self-education. You know, we had good teachers, but they also had limited knowledge. Like mm-hmm. you can't rely yourself on the teachers who had the same kind of problematic. Like, you know, we, we, we didn't have the freedom to travel really or means to travel mm-hmm. and, and so on or grow up in that kind of intellectual environments and cultural environments mm-hmm. in that way. But look, very cultured and very deep rooted and very uh, goes back a few thousand years you know one thing that i find very interesting is this whole idea of studio practice versus something like that is more itinerant and uh, somebody had described you as parapetetic this word that is almost like pathetic but it's not (laughs) (laughs) i hope not (laughs) um no parapetetic means someone who is always on the move and doing things so it's funny kavramsal is a conceptual in in turkish and a friend of mine accidentally said karamsar which means pathetic so <laughs> instead of saying conceptual artist once he called me pathetic artist which is karamsar artist you know so just to add, add to your comment yeah yeah you know so you have you know I, I find that you know you have sort of like developed this practice that relies so much on moving away from the studio and rightfully so because 
you don't even I don't know if you have a studio right now, but yet you do all this work and places and they are also monumental in the sense that you can just reappropriate a vehicle or something, you know. And I wonder, you know, it's one thing to to say this museum there, this art school there, this history made me into an artist. But it's something else to say, okay, but it made me into this artist who believes so much in the interconnectedness of things and the world. How what part of your life and who? Who in your life? Was it, you mentioned your uncle, your mom, your dad. Who was it in your life that sort of like when you were growing up sort of like gave you a sense of, okay, this is how we are more related. It's not all stuck in one place. Everyone, uh, basically, in my, in, uh, in my immediate, like, my okay, my uncle uh, um, uh, went to the first uh, school and I saw the paintings he did. But actually, my grandma, the way she saw through her eyes, my uncle was more interesting. Mm -hmm. And the other day, my aunt found that text. I made, my, I interviewed my grandma, mm -hmm. who don't know how to write. You know, he, she was never uh, had chance to educate, uh, mm -hmm. go to school. But she she observes my uncle and she just defines what is art. I just ask her what is art, and she explained what is art in a beautiful, beautiful way. And uh, that was more interesting than my uncle going to the art uh, academy. Yeah. You know, that has an influence, of course. But if I was uh, staying with that kind of information, I would be maybe maximum uh, reaching out to modern times in a Western way. So yeah. it, it it is more interesting. I was always seeing it through the other's eyes that are around who are not necessarily from the art world. Mm -hmm. And this, this self-education always come through that. So I could always stay outside of the art world while trying to function within the art world. Mm -hmm. And this um, this kind of approach never changed for me. So I never uh, put myself in the illusion of the art world that mm -hmm. is only for the art world yeah. and for art audience or people have this pre-knowledge about or education about art mm -hmm. uh, in a certain specific way and mostly Western way. But others who clearly say they have no clue about art mm -hmm. and how they see it, how they understand my work, which mm -hmm. can have multi-layered transversal maybe internal art references and so on, but it should have a meaning. Mm -hmm. It should have a meaning for anyone who come across to it mm -hmm. within or without the context of mm -hmm. it, you know, in elsewhere. Is well. this something that you try to have in mind all the time or so sort of like to enforce and say it should have a meaning? But isn't meaning subjective? Uh, absolutely. So it it should have multiple subjective meanings. Okay. You know, so it shouldn't have just one one line or meaning that I I I think it's important. I think it's just, it needs to be done. Uh, this is never uh, convincing enough, and this is the way. Maybe probably I went away from painting, mm -hmm. although that was maybe the most important important have been most important meaning, mm -hmm. and also political tool for me mm -hmm. uh, to go through all these early years because I was painted. I was a painter mm -hmm. at a highly politicized university. Mm -hmm. I was kind of protected. <laughs> Everyone yeah. kind of respected <laughs> me. You know, I was like I can cross borders. Mm -hmm. I can like the moment you know you don't cross borders saying you're an activist. You cross borders saying you're a painter, and then. Everybody thinks you're harmless. So this harmlessness protected me in very extreme political times, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, early years. But thinking that as, as a kind of main job to be a painter, mm -hmm. never thought it as a, as a job. But what if I wanted to be an artist still? And that thing didn't feel like it should be a job like mm -hmm. that. I had to get away from my own desire, which was the biggest desire to, to continue painting and this internal journey and my solo journey that, that, that I could have had a studio and spend all my time painting because mm -hmm. it's very meditative and it's mm -hmm. self-curing and all this stuff, mm -hmm. which, which is very useful these days. I mm -hmm. secretly paint these days sometimes mm -hmm. after 15 years, but still the function of it, I shouldn't confuse 
my own wishes with the wishes uh, that I want to I want to get there through my art mm -hmm. in general mm -hmm. you know so this multiple subjectivities mm -hmm. rhizomatic subjectivity has to be there mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. has to be misunderstood has to be taken to different directions that, mm -hmm. that I didn't even imagine myself mm -hmm. artworks have to have their afterlives mm -hmm. and they have their afterlives and it's not necessarily that I I have to obsessively control that process when art, artwork is out, uh, shared with public uh, it's, so, it's so interesting that you talk about artwork must have its own life and i think that you have related that life to destiny as well that that is to say you have to allow a place for the destiny yeah of the artwork to play out and i like that a lot that you associate life to destiny is that how you see it really this relationship absolutely but we need to keep the gate open for the destiny for the artwork so mm -hmm. there are a lot of manipulation in the art world mm -hmm. that uh, uh, avoids an artwork to have free life you know free destiny mm -hmm. It's not about just ownership, but the way the ownership is done. You know, the author can have this kind of concept. Like I can have this kind of concept that the artwork should have this free afterlife and whatever direction it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. But others take the ownership afterwards, should have the same kind of ethics and approach to let that destiny happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I think a lot about the future uh, distribution of the artwork, social, economic, political uh, protection, storage, uh, distribution, and everything, mm -hmm. display of the artwork in the future mm -hmm. because of uh, believing that the access to life of that artwork, mm -hmm. art piece, needs to be always there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It should not be blocked mm -hmm. institutionally mm -hmm. or uh, other ways, other kinds of manipulations shouldn't be on the way. Mm -hmm. So there, that requires a lot of thinking. So it's not like that I necessarily, I'm done. I did my artwork. I don't care what's happening, who speculates economically, uh, financially or politically the artwork. I do think about those things a lot because I the number one priority is the is the is the life of it mm -hmm. that it needs to be there mm -hmm. it needs to have that meaning for the for the public out there i think this is a good moment to sort of like zero in in you know one of your body of works i'm very much drawn to this one called the swinging doors mm -hmm. that you started in 2008 or 9 9 and all the way through 2018 even and yeah. you've been exploring S it and still now yeah yeah, yeah it's still now mm -hmm. yeah so can we just talk about that a, a bit? Because I, I loved all of the processes happening there, especially beginning with the police shield mm -hmm. and then transforming that into a swinging door yeah. and all of that. Sure, it's a good example because it's a very as simple as it can get. It's a ready-made uh, object mm -hmm. and I just transformed the function from police shield to, to a swinging door. Mm -hmm. So super simple, maybe late 90s type of artwork that mm -hmm. I did in 2009. But the way it was done was important. Mm -hmm. So um, the first attempt was in Poland that uh, Museum of Modern Art. They mm -hmm. didn't have a venue yet, but they want, they, they had a show. And I proposed first time ever for that show and they failed. Mm -hmm. There was a big protest in Poland at the time, mm -hmm. especially for the new music was going to be built. And uh, there was a, a bazaar a location there that was very like a uh, very hectically publicly used location. And mm -hmm. people were objecting mm -hmm. the new museum coming up there mm -hmm. top down. Anyway, um, we were in this temporary building and they were looking for police shields and trying to get from the Polish uh, uh, police because mm -hmm. I told them I, I want the original ones and they couldn't get it. So we made a fake one. Mm -hmm. So the first one was fake mm -hmm. and the only fake one was the first one. So I could have give up. I could have think, okay, well, we tried to, they tried to because it's about their skills, you know, mm -hmm. the museum uh, so curators. So you started 
like the other way around. Eh? Yeah, yeah. It's like it start like a normal art, right? Yeah. And they contact the police officers and they are like, no way, we don't give you original exactly. shit. Because they actually don't get, give it to civilians or mm-hmm. civil organizations, civic organizations, mm-hmm. this kind of things. It mm-hmm. has to be, uh, it's produced by some private companies often. And it's not possible to sort of like find one that is no longer in use and things like that? Yeah, it changed in every country. So mm-hmm. I, I had different versions of mm-hmm. it, so of the story. But uh, the next place, I think, well, I don't know if Istanbul was the next place, already a ch- more challenging place mm-hmm. to get. We managed to get, like, you know, someone knew someone and then someone knew how to have the conversation uh, temporarily. So it started with a temporary loaning, loaning it. It went all the way until uh, the Brazilian um, Barellas collectors uh, contacted me, I think, around 2012, 2000, something like that, when we um, they were doing a show at a venue there and they wanted to buy the piece and they contacted me and very 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 special couple a collector they they were like we want this piece and i said sure you can have it uh, you can have the brazil version you have to go to the police department and uh, find a way to get the original ones mm-hmm. and the moment get uh, you get the original ones then I prepare the certificate and I can sell it to you as <laughs> a Brazil edition. So Camila went, I think, for a month. Mm-hmm. She thought of completely like so many different strategies, mm-hmm. how to go to the police department, how mm-hmm. to have a conversation with them. So she tried so hard and she, at the end she managed to get two original police sheets from Brazilian <laughs> police. <laughs> Uh, and then I was able to sell the sell the work. So they they had to do such a grand work, mm-hmm. and normally curators have to do that work. Mm-hmm. So it's like really this process of uh, not only symbolically changing the function of mm-hmm. it and then telling a story about it, but it's really this pre process of trying to negotiate such mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. with the authorities. I, f- I find that very interesting. And at the end of the day, people just see it as a swinging door that you have to pass through. But yet, there's so much process has gone into it. Of, of getting it, what comes to mind now is this process of transformation that happens within your artwork, um, but also reappropriation. But before we go into that, I want to also ask you in relation to the swinging doors, what prompted the, the project? Could you like go back to one particular anecdote? Because I also want to get a sense of how you begin your thinking about one particular body of work. Um, is there one experience? Is there someone? Is there a story? Is there a book you read? What is it that really prompted? Yeah, I have to think of uh, 2009, but I was like thinking, you know, the tools. So if I go back to 2005 and I did this uh, little piece, somebody else's car transforming mm-hmm. ordinary cars parked into, you know, with cardboards to police car and taxi uh, using simple cardboards. And at the end, you look at a white car that looks like a police car, right? Uh, so a little bit of symbolism. You give it to a tool and then the mean, whole meaning changed. With this one, I was really thinking uh, how maybe the pre-process became more hard and important, but usually I think what happens afterwards, how that artwork goes back to life, which later became more obvious with my work by Kunin's Barricade. So it's mm-hmm. kind of, a, you know, um, if you connect this police shields piece, that's really all about like how you get it out of, you know, that official yeah. um, uh, authoritarian context and somehow bring it to the art art context. Yeah. Try to make it as innocent as possible so they can actually agree to give you. Mm-hmm. But they come with the traces. Mm-hmm. You know, every shield has lots of traces. They mm-hmm. are used traces. They are actually used in, in demonstrations and they have mm-hmm. all these traces on them. So they are not like 
coming from storage. Mm-hmm. You know, they are not like artworks were kept mm-hmm. in the storage. They come used. out, they are yeah, used. From the everyday. And you mm-hmm. feel this everyday u- mm-hmm. use of them. Mm-hmm. And you feel that it was the tension was there. And it's not this, this just the tension you just go through and they hit you back, you know, like mm-hmm. this, but you still go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the tension from the past. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I think... Uh, my works as a kind of dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. Then they start making sense if moving from the 2005 somebody else's car's piece. This was like about that illusion is the public space mm-hmm. um, and a civilian car turned into a police car uh, and the owner can't recognize because, but then you can also immediately convert it back to the normal. Mm-hmm. So it's a split second illusion to uh, really getting the police shields from the hard negotiations and somehow out of the context. It's mm-hmm. like a counter manipulation mm-hmm. going on here. Mm-hmm. Like who manipulates who mm-hmm. through art. Mm-hmm. And and then from that go to the barricade piece, which uh, is kind of comes with a contract that it, it needs to go back to public. It needs to go back to the streets when there is an uprising mm-hmm. according to human rights you know, declaration mm-hmm. in that country. And and eventually now, like this was still a proposal. Let's say this was just a imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I managed to install that piece in different institutions, different countries, uh, six times, mm-hmm. but the sixth time now, finally, it's part of a collection. So mm-hmm. it is not a proposal anymore. Mm-hmm. It is real. Mm-hmm. So I am really much interested with how to return this process. You know, not only take it from life, mm-hmm. but always back and forth, art, mm-hmm. life, art, life. Yeah. Always back and forth. That's something that I find interesting because you've also done interventions in that sort of like looks at how uh, the power dynamics within institutions. In one of the exhibitions, one of the festivals or so, where you did an, uh, a space for unpaid interns. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, can we talk about that a little? Because I, sure. I find that very interesting. Like, okay, this is not for the VIP people yeah. who are coming to this. I think it's an art fair. Yeah, it's yeah. In an Dubai. Art, yeah, the Dubai art, art fair. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of like, your art piece is a place for the unpaid interns. I mean, it could have been anybody. It could have been, oh, yeah, let's mm-hmm. do, let's bring in some refugees from the streets and put here. But no, mm-hmm. you went to these people who, it's not so much about whether they have money or not or whether they can fend for themselves. It's, it's more about they are somewhere within the, you know, the hierarchy, you know, the, the ladder of how you know, art institutions and all of that organize themselves or position themselves in relation to the people who make art happen. Often art institutions or art institutional structures like art fairs is one of them, mm-hmm. like very speedy one. Mm-hmm. You know, it hap- happens in three days, maybe install process a little bit longer than this three days, but it just happens so fast mm-hmm. and and then it's gone. And too many things involved, complexities involved in it. And mm-hmm. of course, every art fair these days, they have their biennial kind of site with more uh, installation looking commissions, large scale commissions mm-hmm. that it may look like you walk into a biennial or they have talks or programs like educational uh, programs and very articulate programs as well. So when I go to a context like that, there's actually the number one priority is getting higher number of sales. Of course, it's effective that for them to have a very strong educational program, talk program on the side, which they did have at Art Dubai uh, Global Forum. 
but still you know the priorities mm -hmm. you know the speed mm -hmm. you know you know the needs mm -hmm. so i look at the structural needs mm -hmm. and when somebody asks me to do an educational program for three days i mean what can you reach in a context like that am i going to do just a side thing or am i going to put this issue in the center of everything mm -hmm. so this is what we did i'm like okay do you have interns they say yes how many like 60 70 mm -hmm. and are they paid no mm -hmm. Okay, do they have a place to hang out? No. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you write, ask the right questions, you get you get all the answers. It's not yeah. so hard. And everyone in the office were very excited about this idea. Then I said, well, I see that there's already three VIP lounges at, the, at Art Dubai, Cartier, mm -hmm. uh, VIP lounge, a normal VIP lounge, mm -hmm. and then another one, uh, Abraj VIP lounge. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, there's already like hierarchy on top of hierarchy in here. Mm -hmm. Like you cannot go with your normal VIP lounge to the other lounge. <laughs> so it's really already confusing structure, which yeah. was really helping a lot. And for some lucky reasons also, I was mm -hmm. fast enough to come up with the idea and demand a location mm -hmm. right in the center. Uh, so the moment you enter, the, this is the first thing you see, this giant banner of inter-VIP, intern mm -hmm. VIP lounge. Mm -hmm which we produced really slick uh, cards and we put, I mean, the budget was not like huge, but we put so many things in there that the other VIP launches didn't have. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they had the best champagne, but we had the a massage service, chocolate fountain, <laughs> uh, the table tennis, wow. <laughs> uh, everything. Within this structure, you know, that's like... Uh, and also conversations happen there. So like artistic conversations happen. With exactly. So I did the educational part, but only if they're interested. Mm -hmm. I invited really high-level uh, uh, speakers, artists, mm -hmm. curators. Mm -hmm. They didn't know who they are, mm -hmm. which was a good part because they would only listen to talks when they are genuinely interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was good to see that, you know, when uh, when someone like Hans Ulrich Aubrey is speaking, mm -hmm. outside, hundreds of people show up and mm -hmm. there maybe like six interns sitting, maybe mm -hmm. five, mm -hmm. and the rest is like having coffee in the back. They're like, well, who is this? Let's ask a question. How did you start your career? Did you do internship? You know, this like, and this also makes the speaker very excited to tell this like in this intimate envir mm -hmm. environment. It mm -hmm. was really articulate program, really intense program, but also you can just like hang out there, have coffee and mm -hmm. have snacks and have a massage. So it's really, <laughs> but to, to get there, I had to do really complex negotiation process. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Usually people don't know about this part. Mm -hmm. As the next artist didn't know about this part or didn't envision that how complex it can get, mm -hmm. is there was a Iranian Canadian artist who wanted to continue my idea because I thought you know, this would be good to have every, every fair mm -hmm. next time. Yeah. It's not like one-time thing. And I told him like more like an open idea. <laughs> Let's keep the intern VIP lunch. Why not? And she was like, she was asked to do a knee project. She's like, no, no, I don't want to do knee project. I want to continue intern VIP lunch in, in my way. Mm -hmm. And she wrote me. I was like, this is brilliant. This is what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. So she starts, uh, you know, over like many months of negotiation. And it didn't, doesn't happen. It didn't happen. Why? It didn't happen. Why? Because negotiations are negotiations. You know, it's very important how you do, how you handle the negotiations. Because it's about to become something much more serious than an artistic intervention. Before it was like, yeah, we can do it. But now it is going towards being sustainable. No, I think even the first one could have been not happening as well. Mm -hmm. Because these things we negotiate, you know, if you talk to wrong people, mm -hmm. if you ask the wrong question, if you do it in the wrong time, mm -hmm. The idea doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And this happens to me many times that I I, I am like, I've tried to find the smartest way of doing the negotiation mm -hmm. 
and really open up the mind of the institution or people working in institution in a more safe way because they are always worried about things might go like institutions are worried about everything can go mm-hmm. wrong right but somehow they are like they sometimes take certain amount of risk mm-hmm. and you have to catch that certain amount of risk mm-hmm. possibility mm-hmm. or you do 100% compromise but then there's nothing interesting coming out of it mm-hmm. you know like i have so many negotiation with institutions sometimes nothing comes out of it mm-hmm. Right now I'm doing a contract with an institution as an intervener that there's no guarantee that I will do the work if it's 100% compromised because it's a very po- politically complex context they put me in. I was like, okay, I'm going to get into this context. Mm-hmm. But if you find a way to push the limits of the institution, mm-hmm. certain amount, then I, I, I promise to make project or outcome, mm-hmm. but I don't have to. What do you think is your negotiating power? Negotiating part is, part is uh, you have power, to power. power. Yeah. Negotiating power is really first of all you have to look at the institution and see what is needed. Mm-hmm. I knew there was a space needed for interns, but if any of the interns goes and tell there like, hey, we need a space, mm-hmm. no one will listen. Mm-hmm. But as an artist, I can propose it as an art project mm-hmm. if it's. Uh, rightly designed and con- contextualized mm-hmm. usually the answer yeah why not because they also you know they they want it to happen but mm-hmm. it's it's not possible mm-hmm. to propose it as a kind of department mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of cases like that that there is a need organized or structurally inside the organization mm-hmm. but people working in these institutions can be very insecure positions like because of their contracts mm-hmm. and they cannot uh, demand, they cannot uh, demand. Uh, in, yes but then change. also i think that it also comes with the weight of the of your kind of practice and people know your work already knows that you can that you appropriate spaces and you make them into an a proposal, an artistic proposal. Yeah, man, now, now they predict, but at the time also still they didn't predict. They were inviting me because of the unpredictability. Yeah. You know, I didn't think I will come up with uh, initiating uh, schools mm-hmm. or this kind of uh, structural things. Like I was more focusing on my own work itself and its relation to audience. But there there was times that the form of invitation came like that and I had to push my limits as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But it's not about pushing my own limits. It has to go hand in hand, you know, together with the institution we mm-hmm. push. So I empathize a lot with people who have full-time contracts or temporary contracts with institutions mm-hmm. that I know the limits of their, their negotiation limits of their positions, mm-hmm. right? Some people internally push for that. Some people know. But when we combine our powers, mm-hmm. that it's more possible. Like artistically, I can propose certain things they can. Mm-hmm. And institutionally, they can do certain things as an independent artist cannot. Mm-hmm. So definitely the combination is important. And this uh, emphasizing the each other's positions mm-hmm. is important. I'm not like, uh, it's always confused with demanding difficult artist title, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you the demanding difficult artist? Mm-hmm. Or everything you ask for is actually to make the workspace better, easier mm-hmm. place to work, mm-hmm. and institution a better place to, to go visit, mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to take it more serious. Mm-hmm. So my proposal often might uh, look like uh, very uh, demanding mm-hmm. or uh, challenging, but it's not a solo challenge. Mm-hmm. I'm not self-sacrifice type mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that I want to just torture myself mm-hmm. the, or I want to torture the others by mm-hmm. demanding really uh, uh, not necessary things, you know, like details that's not so necessary. to. It won't change the result much. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so I, I, I'm more interested in that. And often that's why maybe it goes through because it's not only about my own wishes. You know, what I find very interesting about your work and your practice is that, you know, the way you move around and do work and think on the go and do all of those things is reminiscent of what Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian author, the late Nigerian author, called um, those who are at crossroads. And of course, this is his way of alluding to those whose work comes from a place of understanding or being in duality. And their output is, always comes from there. But what's interesting about yours is that it's not a concept that you say, okay, I talk about it as concept. It's almost as if you live and breathe in that sense. And it just moves you. What I'm also interested in is to get a sense of you know, how you move with the flow. Because at some point, I mean, if you're working within the art world and the institutions, so when they call you, you go, you go, you, you know, you, you have to make all this project year, year in, year out. Do you also have a sense of, do you have a sense of control over, you know, how you are moving and where you're going to? For instance, have you said to yourself, okay, I want to go to other continents. I want to go to Australia. I want to go to to to. To, to Asia, I want to go to Africa with all these ideas? Or is it like you're working within the, the, the proposals over to you? Yeah, I mean, this uh, anecdote, uh, Armenian journalist, Haran Tinkru, was assassinated in 2007, mm -hmm. uh, refers to one of his latest articles, talking to an old wise man, mm -hmm. you know, in the artist of Anatolia. And the man says, the water finds its crack. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, it's not like I don't need to, you know, search for the, yeah. the, the cracks are there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not that I'm searching for, I was blamed that I'm searching for crisis. You know, or yeah, wherever you've been told that. I was told, yeah, I was told that I, wherever I go, there is some crisis. So if I go, I'm like happy, I get an invitation from my holiday town. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly uh, the most political thing, one can imagine is happening at that moment when mm -hmm. I'm going there. So mm -hmm. I was blamed that it's because of my karma or mm -hmm. something. Thankfully, after COVID, uh, people stopped saying that because we are all in crisis now. So it's not only me. Uh, yeah. But, you know, talking about, talking about, you know, you always looking for crisis. Sometimes also crisis get to, get yeah. to find you because... I, I am not, but uh, the, the, way of, the way of thinking, I always think of state of emergency, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I always uh, leave my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So the moment you leave your comfort zone, you think that way, you find those cracks and you find those gaps, mm -hmm. you know, the system failures and mm -hmm. they're all around. It's mm -hmm. not only in uh, undemocratic countries where you see that democracy is directly damaged and mm -hmm. sabotaged, but it happens in every country. So mm -hmm. I could see those kind of unfair situations and setups that people feel insecure. They end up in situations that they never uh, volunteered for mm -hmm. uh, in the very wealthy developed countries as mm -hmm. well. Like there's so many levels of like unfairness going on there. So I'm not going to just ignore that if I'm invited to a specific challenging situation, mm -hmm. I'm going to look at it together with people who are maybe sometimes feel stuck in mm -hmm. those situations. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I'm totally an outsider. Mm -hmm. uh, in most cases I am, because if it's different parts of the world that I hardly ever been, mm -hmm. or, you know, I don't know the local context as much as the locals yeah. do. Uh, I'm not going to be an art tourist going, artist tourist, and you know, going there and trying to teach them what they, they already know much better than me. Yeah. But I'm going to look it through their eyes, mm -hmm. uh, 
the what is what what is the system failure there and, and then how are you able to do this within a short period of time that you usually go to these places uh, i trust uh, people locally you know i trust the local knowledge mm-hmm. and the local knowledge is there always mm-hmm. if people uh, trust you mm-hmm. they share with they you they share with you they share with you because they they know that you are not going to uh misuse it mm-hmm. you're not this is also what we were doing in istanbul when i was still living there any foreigner comes to town you know curator or visitor artist mm-hmm. all our knowledge was like open page mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. served on a tray mm-hmm. right away the first day you know mm-hmm. the moment somebody arrives at the airport they start getting this information with like everyone was giving it giving giving it mm-hmm. until at certain point we we managed to understand the, the international art world systems and people's intentions different intentions like somebody who comes because there is a specific grant mm-hmm. to do something but there's actually no interest mm-hmm. in the local context mm-hmm. we start to see the differences mm-hmm. we start to see that okay this knowledge needs to be given to certain people but needs to be protected from certain other people mm-hmm. because there is no interest you know if there is no generous interest mm-hmm. It is only because of a specific grant. Mm-hmm. It's only because of a shortcut mm-hmm. research. You know, it's only because of those like because of just basic some income mm-hmm. to get for, through some local scene committed looking kind of situation. Uh, it's better to stay away from that. But it took few years for I think everyone to understand that, uh, and for me too. It's a bit like disappointing to see that because you mm-hmm. just want to share, right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> you, want, you just want to share the local knowledge. So whenever I had chance. Often I'm lucky enough to get this uh, access, mm-hmm. even if there is there's a language barrier. Mm-hmm. There is someone who can help me access that knowledge. Mm-hmm. I have a project called Invisible Borders, and over since 2009 we've been traveling, you know, on the road, creating work on the, you know, as we travel, crossing borders. And it's always been a, you know, the main question: How do you? Because you're always there for a short time. How do you sort of like become part of that? And this whole question of local knowledge. I don't know. I like the way you put it, where you say it's already there. The people are custodians of it, so to speak. And they can just make something that you should spend two months, three months getting to understand, just be available and accessible mm-hmm. to you in a few hours simply because they trust you and they yeah. give it to you. It's that kind of collaboration. Is there a way you sort of like acknowledge or account for that collaboration, mm-hmm. you know, specifically in the work itself? Uh, just to give one of my secrets in that, not really secret, but I had always a double schedule when I go somewhere, let's say another part of the world mm-hmm. overseas for three days mm-hmm. and need to really come up with a major artwork site specific mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. I have an official schedule. It's three days. They take me to locations and mm-hmm. uh, uh, do to meet and so on. I, I do that, but mm-hmm. there's always uh, some parts of the day. Mm-hmm that I, I make my own schedule. Mm-hmm. I go meet, maybe all through that official schedule, I meet someone. Mm-hmm. And then that person takes me to somewhere else that is out of the schedule, mm-hmm. another location, another place, and mm-hmm. suddenly I'm in proper local context. Mm-hmm. It's the sense mm-hmm. uh, you get in such a short time that official schedule doesn't always give you the actual information. Mm-hmm. It is a one way of information especially uh, through the locals, not in with bad, in, bad intentions, mm-hmm. but they think what is important from their institutional perspective. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are some topics that they don't want you to touch upon, mm-hmm. 
because it will be more complicated for them to locally deal with it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have your own uh, parallel local schedule, you won't know about those things mm-hmm. and you will remain in that uh, narrow um, uh, way of research and, mm-hmm. and contact with mm-hmm. the local context, even though you're there. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we don't travel and, and more really. <laughs> yeah, so, so. now let me <laughs> ask, so how has it been for you the last you know, year? The last year, not been any travel. Does it mean that you've not been working? Well, I was prepared uh, because the year before I was waiting like for one and a half year after mm-hmm. submitting all my documents, I was waiting for my Dutch uh, citizenship mm-hmm. approval. Which you have now. Uh, which I have now, <laughs> which we, we celebrated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, With DJ, uh, yeah. Uh, we just before this mess started. Yeah. Luckily, we, yeah. we had a chance to celebrate yeah. in some years. And the last one and a half year of that process, when everything was ready, mm-hmm. they didn't give me any date when I will I can go to the ceremony my letters last letter never arrived at and so i had no idea when i need to show up at the ceremony to pick up my new passport so this unknown time which was the last step mm-hmm. uh, for my freedom to travel like properly mm-hmm. uh, and then covid started uh, it was a time similar to this time because i had to cancel even solo shows or move twice or three times i had to do some keynote talk or lectures symposiums all from skype uh, mm-hmm. install things through whatsapp and mm-hmm. um, do everything a lot of things from distance because i couldn't really book i had to tell the institutions they book me a flight ticket with the option that they can return it because there's no guarantee i can go mm-hmm. so one and a half year was like that i had to do a lot of important things that i would love to go in person and mm-hmm. do uh, from distance which is also manageable uh, have been manageable mm-hmm. and I was kind of prepared for all those uh, situations. It, it seemed like it's my individual problem. Mm-hmm. Now everyone has the same. Have also the institutions have to adjust because it sounded a bit too much for me to ask uh, institutions like, yes, I can come, but maybe not. I won't be able to come. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it it's looks out of schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, but now everyone has to postpone things, have to extend things, have to make plan B, plan C, plan D. This was my entire life, basically. Emotionally, personally, it had a lot of impact and changes. But uh, I knew how to be in one place until I was 24. I never traveled abroad outside of the country. Mm-hmm. So and before I hardly traveled within the country. So I was always in one place. I always had to imagine the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was not in the world yet. Mm-hmm. So I was also, I think, inherently uh, prepared for this being in one place. Yeah, being in one place, yeah. Although I was last 13, 15 years, I was just traveling every week, every other week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, speaking of traveling or being in one place now, before um, all of this started, the lockdown started, you had an exhibition in, at the Yarat Contemporary Center in Azerbaijan. But then it turned out. So that was what I was trying to refer to when I said that sometimes crisis also finds you. Um, where you make work and how then eventually unlucky. how <laughs> unlucky i could be like how worse it can get i don't think it can get worse than that. i so, had yeah. first time combination of uh pandemic like some kind of like pandemic kind of reasons uh, and then political reasons mm-hmm. on top of each other yeah. because of the pandemic i went there and then i got stuck two months i couldn't return to oh. berlin and uh, I was supposed to be there one week. Then I managed to get to Istanbul, Amsterdam. It took two months to come back. Were you going by road? Huh? Were you going by road? Uh, I the... was checking those options as well. <laughs> Luckily, so you stayed there two months? Uh, no, no. In Azerbaijan, I, was managed, I managed to get out after three days. But it was basically 
the day after I arrived there, there was the announcement start coming, you mm-hmm. know, that flights that, that gonna flights be cancelled, stopped and, and also between EU countries mm-hmm. because I was always between, I've been always between Holland and Germany mm-hmm. and then at the time I didn't have Anmendung here, registration mm-hmm. here. I had my house here also, uh, but I couldn't return for two months. But the show in Azerbaijan, and also it was... Um, not ready yet. So even though I traveled there, mm-hmm. the show never finished. Mm-hmm. I, I told you didn't the, finish it even. I told the director. I mean, just sent everyone because there was no government uh, announcement to tell people to you know do home office yet. Mm-hmm. I told the director, like you know what, just send everybody home, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they work from home. They shouldn't be here just for me yeah. to install the show, and I will also book earlier flight. Mm-hmm through Istanbul, but then I got stuck in Istanbul, never made it to Berlin mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, and then the show was extended and extended and the director was not there anymore after August, but the show was still there. Mm-hmm. So it was an institution without a director. And then the war escalated in September. Yeah. For the sake of our listeners, can you give us a sense of what this war you yeah. Know, what was it so this is a conflict from you know I think uh, intensely since 1994, mm-hmm. and this is the area, uh, the small border area between yeah. Armenia and Azerbaijan, yeah. uh, where uh, there is a majority of inhabitants have been lately Armenian uh, population, mm-hmm. and it has been a huge conflict involving other countries, mm-hmm. Russia, Turkey, and so on. So it's 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 not just a small area conflict and never-ending conflict mm-hmm. of course it's a hypersensitive context mm-hmm. and uh, one way is to not to do it at all from the beginning mm-hmm. but the time i said yes let's do it it was not pandemic it was not mm-hmm. war, war escalation mm-hmm. but although there was always a minor conflict at the border there mm-hmm. and it was a, a very sensitive topic to talk about so i wanted to first do a maneuver through my work mm-hmm. and my work had a cat that has blue and green eyes mm-hmm. And it looks really friendly yeah. <laughs> or maybe a little scary mm-hmm. in the video. But without naming it, I knew that cat has uh, multiple names mm-hmm. and it's claimed by different countries, yeah. basically. Yeah. So the, it's, it has a Kurdish name, it has a Turkish name, mm-hmm. it has an Armenian name. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought that was a significant <laughs> intervention within my work. What was that this I that, like a real cat or something? Was just made up. Yeah, it's it's a cat. It's re- exists. It's in from the one area which is a border town, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, to Ar- uh, Armenia, the, the east. Uh, and they have like different different colors of eyes. Yeah, one blue, one green, and it's David Bowie style. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. I was able to s- project this cat like ten meters screen in in this institution in Baku. Wow. Uh, without no one actually noticing, uh, surprisingly, but only the Armenians can notice it. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you're Kurdish, you would notice it. Or mm-hmm. it is, it's also, some call it Ankara cat, some mm-hmm. call it one cat, but it's actually originally one, which is usually, I mean, used to be a majority of population, a big part of the population was Armenian, mm-hmm. you know, before the borders redefined. So I thought this internal process will be enough for me to to exercise this difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And then the war escalated and uh, the director was gone. So I was literally having a conversation, uh, f- finding out later that uh, I need to talk to basically state directly. <laughs> so the in- independent art institution became an institution that has no autonomy, although in the beginning there was, because mm-hmm. there was actually... Uh, 
open-minded director who, mm-hmm. who was able to negotiate things mm-hmm. in a very sensitive way, very aware way, and mm-hmm. that we could go that far and do the show. Mm-hmm. And without me feeling any kind of censorship. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, if the institution has its own autonomy, it's possible to do such show, but uh, it ended up that institution mm-hmm. even had uh, no director at the time when, mm-hmm. when the conflict happened. And at the end, I had to ask them to shut down my show when uh, my show was advertised in a post, uh, as a kind of propaganda, one-sided propaganda for mm-hmm. the country, which they could do. They're free from to, Armenia? From Azerbaijan. Okay. And uh, which they could do, but not with my banner uh, hanging there. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, and they refused to take that down and I take, uh, asked them to take down my exhibition. Is it the first time that your work has been caught in a, a political... Oh, I wish it was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I was avoiding it since some years. Uh, I was really trying to go back to the work and try to figure out negotiations through my work mm-hmm. instead of like really challenging the whole institutional structure, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. we had a big one in Sydney in 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, this became an uh, example. It was studied in many schools, that case. Mm-hmm. It was uh, referred in many places all around the world as an example where a group of artists can challenge the organizational body of a 40 years old, mm-hmm. uh, very respected biennial, and, and it eventually chairman resigned mm-hmm. after all actions mm-hmm. in 2014. Uh, but of course, every incident like that, it takes a time mm-hmm. to to recover mm-hmm. and go and bring back the focus to the work. So it's very important how often these things happens, and if you're ready for it, because there's a lot of uh, reason to become easy target. Mm-hmm. You can be targeted from all sides, mm-hmm. and you, if you especially coming from out of context, and you always try to keep the focus in the right thing. So when it's a collective action. It is more easier, uh, at least as a collective, to have a collective statement, not a personalized one, mm-hmm. and really address the structural problem. Mm-hmm. Like in Sydney, that they signed an agreement with the government to run two detention camps mm-hmm. that are actually internationally illegal mm-hmm. to keep asylum seekers infinitively mm-hmm. against the UN Convention 1951. Mm-hmm. So how can we be okay as internationals going mm-hmm. into a context that they think we will not find out about this and they do this just like a month before the opening, um, a month and a half before the opening, you know, this, of course it's going to be a topic and it's going to be important thing to address. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, it's very important to, to, to think the impact afterlife of such actions as well, like and as an artist, mm-hmm. as an individual independent artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to always highlight the international values and importance of uh, autonomy of art and mm-hmm. arts institutions. It could be in a very totalitarian country or conflicted country, but if the art institution maintain and sustain its hundred percent autonomy, mm-hmm. then you can you can go work there. But if it's it's not hundred mm-hmm. percent, mm-hmm. and if it's there, of course it's better not to yeah, not to involve to, yeah. with that country and so on. And mm-hmm. there are countries like that. I never. Uh, involved or say yes to any invitation. If it, yeah, if the if the institution does not have the autonomy, or hundred percent, hundred percent. Does any institution ever have hundred percent autonomy? Well, no, but it's it is hundred percent negotiated. You know, it's not like it's, okay. it has okay. to. It has to be like yeah, we gave up this part. It's, mm-hmm. It is the way it is. You know, it's a business mm-hmm. business as usual situation. Mm-hmm. It has to be dynamically 
it has to be dynamically negotiated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if institutions inherit that and say, this is the way it is mm -hmm. because we are in this country, mm -hmm. then the problems start there. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be still the situation, but they are actively negotiating because it's really a conversation ongoing as mm -hmm. we do in our artwork. Institutions is to do that with states. Susan Sontag wrote in her 1967 essay, The Aesthetics of Silence, that we must acknowledge the surrounding environment of sound or language in order to recognize silence. And this statement here is an, also an inspiration for the Silent University, which is a platform that you founded. Can we talk about the Silent University? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a lifetime engagement for me. And it was a new uh, chapter in my practice. It started in 2011, again with a temporary invitation, which was meant to be based on a one-year residency program in London. Uh, one-year contract I had uh, uh, to do the residency and research in, um, in uh, London with Tate and Delfina Foundation. So I had this flexible position, which I truly enjoyed at the time to understand the inside structure of those institutions, very much, very different kind. Delfina is more family kind of environment and uh, a smaller institution and Tate is like very um, major size institution where, you know, so many people working there and mm -hmm. huge departments and there's this backstage area that it's important to know how it functions. And uh, Silent University idea came during that experience. Mm -hmm. And I realized uh, it's, if there's any way we go into this idea, which was focusing on uh, academics who were unable to legally perform their academic knowledge uh, because they, they don't have the legal papers. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't speak the language maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, they are not allowed to, in this kind of setup, to perform any academic knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look urgent anyway, because mm -hmm. to get the basic rights, mm -hmm. it takes time. So in 2011-12, and what I observe, it takes uh, eight years sometimes to get even a first phone call yeah. for the first permit document. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to wait. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's up to 20 years mm -hmm. process. So mm -hmm. some people had those stories. And it was hard to believe for me, and this is pre-Brexit times, mm -hmm. that it's already happening in that level. I mean, it was already hard for me to get my own visa, which with the proper invitation, it felt very strange way anyway, going somewhere by invitation. It didn't feel like mm -hmm. full invitation. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, but this was good that it was part of the process. So mm -hmm. I knew, okay, even if this idea continues, I won't be in London. Mm -hmm. Maybe I will be able to go visit, but I'm not going to leave there. So yeah. If it's going to be a kind of like lifetime, long-term engagement, not yeah. only for me, but for everyone involved, at least longer than a year, mm -hmm. uh, how are we going to make this sustain and autonomous and independent and so on? So uh, I had to set up the idea that this should be a school without any legal obstacle, language obstacle, that anyone can perform in any language, mm -hmm. whatever background they had, mm -hmm perform academic knowledge mm -hmm. immediately. So mm -hmm. immediate recognition instead of uh, waiting for long-lasting authorization. Yeah. And it sounds maybe negative at first. It was confusing for people to call this silent university. Mm -hmm. But I, I thought, okay, well, what do you want? Uh, we will never, never call it uh, giving a voice or giving something or helping people. Mm -hmm. Who is helping who in this case? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. So it's about self-empowerment. Yeah. So you have to create kind of right setup yeah. for self-empowerment. For collaborations. For collaborations. Yeah, basically there's no helping someone, there's us helping ourselves. 
I mean, I was myself also helpless. I was there temporarily. <laughs> at the end, you know, everyone participated. Actually, they got permits. Mm -hmm. at, by the end of three years, we mm -hmm. were able to actively continue two more years there. And who are the, you know, like participants or the students? Yeah, we had... Uh, from where? <clears throat> we had, uh, for instance, uh, Dr. Nazar from Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he was a doctor uh, in Iraq and he moved to UK a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And by the end of this project, he got actually UK citizenship. Interesting. Uh, uh, very sincere, very nice member of Silent University. Muligata also, um, uh, who was, uh, uh, I think, uh, um, studied in, uh, in Eritrea and mm -hmm. also got his permits later. So we had pharmacists, we had nurses, we, wow, had, we had uh, all kinds of backgrounds, yeah. you know, activists, teachers, uh, they were all there. How was the pedagogy like? How was the faculty like? Were there people teaching and then, you know, or, and how would you, how did you deal with yeah, all we, these different we, languages? We, of course, started with basic academic structure to get the acknowledgement, you know, so it has to be lectures. Mm -hmm. If we can afford, they can turn into courses and it has to be, first we even thought, okay, the information can be uh, transformed later, mm -hmm. but later um, versions we did, uh, anything can be just in original language. It's a mm -hmm. form of silence, you know, because yeah. you just yeah. don't, you're in the room, you don't yeah. understand anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you, the person doesn't need to be actually literally yeah. silent. It's just need to do it in the yeah. original native language or the language they feel the most comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. What, what I find very interesting about this project is that, you know, even in the text that you wrote about it, you, you, you talked about how silence becomes active, not something passive. So in that sense, when a language is not translatable, it doesn't mean that it's silent. It's just that it takes on this more, you know, opaque Should Absolutely, like who is in charge of yeah. uh, even silence? Mm -hmm. uh, are you supposed to just wait for a phone call or you can take an action? Yeah. You can choose when and not to be silenced. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like you choose. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really uh, re replace the control. Mm -hmm. And when everyone is prepared, like mm -hmm. every participant, we're prepared mm -hmm. with their lectures, mm -hmm. with the format. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to do these regular things. Mm -hmm. We could do it anytime. Mm -hmm. Anytime there is a chance, there is a space, there is a budget. They have to be paid professionally. Mm -hmm. Until we get there, until they are regularly paid, you know, we can at least be prepared. And this is the problem. When you're not prepared, when mm -hmm. the time and chance comes, mm -hmm. you cannot perform it. And that's the pacifying process of people feeling miserable and useless mm -hmm. and even forgetting the knowledge they have. Yeah. So yeah. it's very important to be prepared. And Silent University was about this immediate recognition with prepared lecturers mm -hmm. and consultants mm -hmm. uh, that they can perform because otherwise you can say, hey, look at this person doesn't mm -hmm. have the knowledge you mm -hmm. cl claim to be there. Mm -hmm. um, in all cases, it was always ready and prepared and we could do it online, offline mm -hmm. um, because people actually couldn't travel. So we had to consider already the online. Even uh, before, presence. yeah, before the COVID and all that. Yeah, Long before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had to think of very interesting. Uh, yeah. time and skill, alternative currencies. Mm -hmm. We were like, we already looking at uh, cryptocurrencies and time and skill exchange ideas, mm -hmm. formats, all the other alternative learnings. Like we were doing all these things before they became mainstream. Mm -hmm. Exercising because we were looking for a way of radical pedagogy mm -hmm. beyond centralized versions of it. All of this makes me think um, of also an essay that you, you wrote about uh, self-design and algorithms. Self algorithmic design. Yeah. Algorithmic design. So, yeah. And then you talked about all these different ways that people are sort of like breaking 
and designing self, but also agency. That's how I understand it. Exactly. If, you know, what I find very interesting is that you also framed all of that within, you know, the millennials, the generation called the millennials, mm-hmm. as people who are very much driving, which both of us belong belong to, mm-hmm. by the way. <laughs> both of us belong to that. <laughs> so as people who are driving that. So how do you, it's interesting. Let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. Maybe make the connection, move away from Silent Universe to this uh, self-design mm-hmm. idea. We, I was kind of criticized in the beginning why I pay so much attention to institutional design. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the logo and the cards, mm-hmm. uh, the lecture cards, mm-hmm. and and uh, really making this very um, England-looking logo, you yeah. know, like <laughs> <laughs> Oxford-looking logo. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to do that? Why we, we can't be more free, like, you know, without the design really mm-hmm. systematic? Of course, exactly that was the reason why we had to do it. Mm-hmm. When you have a serious institutional design, nobody knew the scale. They mm-hmm. didn't know if you were 10 people, 20 people, mm-hmm. or few thousands. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know organizational scale. It really looks like that scale that you need to take it serious. Mm-hmm. And uh, officially also you cannot call something university. We, we wanted to, I wanted to use the term university instead of academy, which you can officially call any mm-hmm. initiative academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought we have to take up that challenge and really play with the scale and go the highest scale uh, in terms of designing this idea mm-hmm. and the rest will come. Mm-hmm. And this is how it happened. Everyone wanted to later have the idea and the logo and they tried to make their versions, you know, like some people really tried to hijack the idea even from this institutional design. Mm -hmm. But it was the design that was empowering certain things, you know, even having this card, Mm -hmm. providing certain accesses, Mm -hmm. free access even, Mm -hmm. or discounted access or taken serious when somebody doesn't have an ID card showing Silent University lecture card, Mm -hmm. it does do something. Mm So the, the design uh, is very much connected also to profiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how do you profile a lecture mm-hmm. or somebody who don't have documents? Like mm-hmm. there's always like, you know, this way of uh, uh, hardcore everyday way of profiling people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and we are being profiled. It doesn't matter if like you are globally traveling uh, international artists who have the necessary invitations and, mm-hmm. and visas eventually obtained. Uh, you are still profiled. Mm-hmm. Like I do have Dutch passport, my mm-hmm. one, but uh, I am still potentially profiled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with awareness of that, the design and the, and the way that it's represented, it's very important. So self-design fashion itself, like seen often mm-hmm. apolitical. And, uh, and actually you can also see art very much apolitical too. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's really about. Sometimes I think there's a lot more can be done with fashion also because of the everyday relationship, yeah, everyday yeah, use relationship. Exactly. Uh, we can have a lot of achievement through mm-hmm. fashion. And is is this notion of the saying that something is apolitical, like art? You know, because oftentimes there are people who some artists who consider themselves activists, mm-hmm. and so they tend to emphasize so much the political uh, power of their art. But then I I begin to wonder if like someone like James Baldwin, who said that at the time of the protest, the, Montgom- the Montgom- uh, Montgomery March, you know, in the 60s, that he was a witness. Mm-hmm. He didn't take part in the protest in, in the sense of marching with them, but he was a witness. And now, as he eventually was writing 50 years later, or as we are reading him 50 years later, it has had enough time to become highly political. 
that witness position. So I wonder if sometimes we shouldn't have that in mind when we say our art is, I mean, maybe it's too direct the way we're using it. Maybe it's better for it to be first a political so that it can now be employed. Mm-hmm. You know, it can now be employed as a tool for political expression. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think of James Baldwin and his elegance, his elegance maybe was the most political side of him, you know, <laughs> showing up in any kind of inappropriate uh, invitation, saying yes to that and showing up there yeah. and showing the elegance yeah. was the political. Maybe at the time he wasn't seen the most political mm-hmm. compared to the his generation, you mm-hmm. know, of directly politically engaged leaders at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. But now when you look back, to, he, he was the most political and he, he found the most free uh, setup when he moved to Istanbul uh, for two years mm-hmm. and... Uh, there where there was a lot of racism actually mm-hmm. but he felt free there because it was a different kind of like he was so welcomed uh, and they even called him arab jimmy mm-hmm. you know with the wrong name <laughs> but mm-hmm. he was so welcomed that he felt okay he's uh, he d- didn't make it in paris mm-hmm. and he really had to get away from u.s context mm-hmm. to be himself although he was visibly so different where mm-hmm. he ended up mm-hmm. in istanbul mm-hmm. but he was also at the same time so welcome because he was out of the context yeah yeah. And that's very, very important. That's and he spoke very, about being out of the context in one of his essays as being, as a black person, when you are in a place, being a stranger yeah. is to be looked at. But being a black stranger is to be looked at especially. And he wrote a whole, you know, thinking yeah. around how that is a place of power or no, not power, but a place of proactivity, yeah. which is what you're saying, being outside the context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think since there is this racial profiling is there and fashion is literally part of it and it's instrumentalized with radical right over the history and also left as mm-hmm. well, you know, there are certain aesthetics mm-hmm. that we must uh, understand that it's not something to shy off and mm-hmm. run away from it, mm-hmm. but it needs to, needs to be acknowledged mm-hmm. in, a, in a right way, mm-hmm. you know, if it's going to be profiling there then you have to keep up your elegance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's very... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that, love that. If it's going to be profile, uh, you have to keep uh, up your elegance. This keeping up elegance is also the same in art. It's not about institutionalization of political art. Mm-hmm. Never about that. It has to claim all the territories of art. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the artist calling himself or herself or they self mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, you know, activist. This mm-hmm. should never happen. You know? mm-hmm. Imagine uh, James Baldwin calling, I don't think he did ever, uh, calling himself, I'm an activist or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. He was a writer. He was a writer. He was a writer. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that he didn't u- use the tools of activism yeah. while being a writer yeah. in the context. And, and this is what I find very, very uh, you know, powerful in your work. And also it makes me feel like this is the reason why you are making a concerted effort to start, like, stay away from the overt, obvious political tensions. So that you can have constantly have a space in a place where your your art can sort of like employ, you know, the dynamics of politics without necessarily losing its human social aspect, where it is playing with the everyday, where it is playing with stories, where it is taken from knowledge, local knowledge that people already have preserved as custodians. I find that very, very, very interesting. Now, I want to ask, um, you say you make your work everywhere, yeah? But why have you decided to settle between Amsterdam and Berlin? Uh, well, I, I went back to my factory settings uh, in, <laughs> factory in settings. a new context always. You know? So I was like, okay, uh, I moved to a new city, try to study there, mm-hmm. or 
for purpose, even within the country, mm-hmm. from my hometown to going to Ankara, it's like a really huge step. Mm-hmm. And from Ankara to going to Istanbul, uh, yeah. uh, it's another huge step. So wow. by the end of, you know, three, four years, is you build up relationships mm-hmm. and you build a certain kind of future for yourself in mm-hmm. a place you come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, and whenever it became more close to comfort zone, like after the struggle years, I always moved to the next city. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that always uh, helped me to improve my capacity as much as I can and challenge uh, the the limits that are around. Uh, and after Istanbul, I moved to Amsterdam. At some point in life, you see that it is not always like moving towards another context that you will again go back to your you know uh, zero contact, zero reference situation. Um, you always go return uh, to previous context. Mm-hmm. It could be very limited. It could be very little time. You know, if I spend nowadays two, three days in my hometown, it's like few months in Europe, maybe more, mm-hmm. few years in Europe. So the impact mm-hmm. of interaction changed. It's mm-hmm. really, really important. Mm-hmm. But I had to spend those years when I was in my childhood there, mm-hmm. like whole time, full time there. Mm-hmm. Or those four years in Ankara, I, I feel a privilege. This was the hardest years, but I am so happy I didn't go just Istanbul right away mm-hmm. to understand the whole context of the whole country. Mm-hmm. You know, if you grow up in Istanbul, it's like growing up in New York. You don't know the context of the entire rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Amsterdam also is not enough to understand the European context, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or Berlin. Berlin mm-hmm. can become this huge bubble nowadays, especially. Mm-hmm. But uh, my interaction with these other cities or my past with these other cities, like my time in Berlin is really protected with my with my past in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. my back and forth travels to Amsterdam mm-hmm. and my past, past. What was in my past? No, I mean, I was there a few years full time, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm in between. Mm-hmm. So, and I feel actually more connected to Amsterdam than Berlin, than Berlin. locally. Mm-hmm. Although I might be sometimes spending more time here. Um, nowadays I'm thinking, actually, I started doing it. Uh, I don't write based in Berlin anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not about the time I spent mm-hmm. here. Or the knowledge I already have since last past five years, five years is a good decent amount of mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Uh, spending most of my time here back and forth, but really learning about Berlin. I think it, it's the time to write, not write based in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. You have a, a Dutch passport, mm-hmm. yeah, but you live here. So is it like you are looking to say, well, you know, still I'm just going to go away from here at some point? Well, Berlin, I never, um, like this year I became officially also, I have an address here too, as mm-hmm. I have in Amsterdam. Um, after COVID, I realized I can't even return. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea of European Union, like, you know, I thought, okay, well, I just have time, just enough time if mm-hmm. I'm lucky that I become citizen of one of the European countries, mm-hmm. because I always thought myself, as traveling artists working in different contexts, speaking mm-hmm. English. And after some time you realize it's not you know, for the local context if you want to spend more than a few years in one place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same in Netherlands and, and Berlin too. Mm-hmm. Berlin is not this international hub of place that is, you know, everyone speaks everyone English about, or like yeah. English and it's international. No, it's very... That's how you seen from the outside. Very provincial. Yeah. It's it's highly, highly provincial. It has still huge impact of uh, East Germany mm-hmm. past mm-hmm. that generation, mm-hmm. you know, that generation impacted or millennia generation yeah. as well. <laughs> it was from here, grow up here. Uh, and the, the best way to understand that, to, to have friends who, who are actually born in not different parts of Germany, but born and grow up in Berlin, mm-hmm. maybe East Berlin. Mm-hmm. So... 
uh, after some years, of course, if you are not completely ignorant, you realize and you learn these mm-hmm. nuances. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, you learn more when you speak the different versions of the um, uh, language, local language, but mm-hmm. also you know the behavior patterns and the way people take things and uh, welcome people. And uh, so there is this idea of Berlin mm-hmm. that is promoted, that is poor and dirty. Therefore, it should be more expensive these days. Mm-hmm. The more and the dirtier it is, it should be more expensive because mm-hmm. it's kind of the identity of the city mm-hmm. compared to some other postcard-looking cities. Mm-hmm. They need to be more clean and more you know, developed-looking to get more tourists. And Berlin is kind of the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's going different directions now, now because it's a lot of speculation. So... It's a city uh, that has actually great, great, uh, interesting recent past, mm-hmm. you know. But right now we are experiencing a very different version of it. And I guess it will settle down after COVID in a different way because mm-hmm. it has been very important that it's it's a city of events. You know, there was 2,000 events per day mm-hmm. before COVID. Mm-hmm. So how do you imagine a city without those events? Mm-hmm. You know, I am still hopeful about that. Actually, it will it might go back to the origins and this community feeling rather than the speculation mm-hmm. and the community feeling is very important that it is as diverse as possible but not in one uh, way uh, of uh, this you know f- artificial way of di- diversity mm-hmm. uh, i don't have time for that mm-hmm. artificial mm-hmm. Way yeah. of diversity <laughs> no yeah. more time for that. yeah it has to sort of like be 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 natural but is it really there especially in the left the left has this whole concept left is full of concepts of diversity safe spaces we, we feel that they're sort of like more yeah left has the concept but they will have to start distributing the contracts they hold to the other people too yeah 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 exactly <laughs> exactly is share, that share yeah share it's time share to share it. the yeah. contracts because like you said no you know uh, berlin is still provincial and is a place that is some almost sort of like burdened by that history and it's still there of course it's moving away from that but there's this sort of like euphoria that people live in on the left side, that it's all kumbaya, we hold hands together, we go, but that's it's, it doesn't really operate that way. And it's a bit less strange to live in that kind of contradiction, you know, all the time. Absolutely. Like within the small uh, micro communities, you can find safe zones and mm-hmm. comfortable zones, but the interaction is very poor between those communities mm-hmm. and uh, the dialogue is not really there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like micro racisms within the mm-hmm. marginal communities. Mm-hmm. And I find this even sometimes more dangerous than the, the visible uh, alt-right, yeah. uh, you know, danger that is out there, which needs to be dealt with yeah. anyway, because there's a big great past. But it's not only that. Mm-hmm. This, this micro racism needs to be dealt with. So if you want to profit, thinking the city is being international, just let's be more sincere that yeah. we really truly do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like uh, it is not enough to also uh, economically to be able to live in the city, uh, outsourcing the income from somewhere else, mm-hmm. like many other international artists does. Uh, and in my case, also all my income come from outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not good enough reason that I can comfortably live here and write there based in Berlin. It's mm-hmm. about the structural change mm-hmm. and openness and structurally, you know. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, yeah. So acknowledging that the ownership of the right to the city mm-hmm. is really for people who actually want to do something for the city mm-hmm. not that the ones doesn't speak the language as uh, less you know we, we should have more interest in learning language by naturally yeah, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> uh, which tell I, me I, about I, it tell me about it I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm learning German right now and uh, you know I'm, I'm saying every you know so again it's contradiction that on one hand we're saying well is it is an open place and all of that at the same time that is even 
some adverts that go that want to encourage speaking English. But on the other hand, systemically, you have to you are forced, basically forced to speak the language because if you don't speak the language, you won't even have it's not sure, not just only a residency permit, but every other thing involved. You know, because there's so much paperwork and it's so reliant on the language itself. So again, and, and there's also the way people treat you when you don't know that. So it's almost as if it's a given that you should speak the language. It's like learn the German, get it out of, out of the way, and then you can do whatever you want. Actually, what you need to learn rather than the language, the, the laws. Mm-hmm. You need to learn the laws page by page. Mm-hmm. And then through the language, you need to address singular pages in everyday uh, occasions yeah. so <laughs> oh wow uh, yeah and uh, not everyone uh, really stops at that moment this is how it works so this de- bureaucracy and idea of you know this kafka style situation mm-hmm. it works only uh, how much bureaucratic knowledge you can display and mm-hmm. distribute mm-hmm. to the others mm-hmm. and that puts you more ownership mm-hmm. situation of mm-hmm. the city of mm-hmm. the place of the country and but it shouldn't be about that it's about the presence it should about the commitment it should mm-hmm. about the community interest mm-hmm. and really uh, celebrating that okay if there is actually this kind of diversity here not one-sided not like health rhetorics and mm-hmm. workshops and mm-hmm. uh, you know that kind of old school left rhetorics but really mm-hmm. progressive and horizontal and you know uh, equal level of collaboration mm-hmm. rather than that kind of uh, uh, we know your culture better than you kind of approach mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you don't integrate you don't fit into the agenda because you already lose all your time anyway try to integrate it mm-hmm. was the same story with silent university mm-hmm. it's not about integration mm-hmm. it's about acknowledgement immediate recognition and this kind of collaboration yeah. so you know i love the way you just kept saying uh, immediate recognition immediate recognition of who we are as we are mm-hmm. and uh, i enjoy pretty much actually that first i was a bit complaining it's harder to become dutch while i'm like traveling in between from berlin you know mm-hmm. but actually i'm really happy that i'm uh, here as dutch mm-hmm. you know i spend time when i spend time in berlin as dutch it gives me another kind of it's confusion it gives confusion totally confusion mm-hmm. uh, you know i didn't arrive here as a guest worker like part of a guest worker family or mm-hmm. this trajectory or unknown process of like someone uh, if i am profiled stereotypically put in i'm just total confusion for everyone and and i think if you all become total confusion for everyone mm-hmm. you know that's the source is kind of shifted and you you can't really place it in mm-hmm. a stereotypical way i think we will then progress mm-hmm. so i was happy to be sometimes uh, referred as asian artist or eastern european artist mm-hmm. i participated in shows like as mediterranean artist um you know in the beginning i was referred always as turkish artists mm-hmm. and finally now i'm referred as kurdish artists in between <laughs> i was turkish kurdish kurdish turkish artists <laughs> and all, all kinds you know uh, so you're so, so like we come back to this whole notion of the and now i'm dutch european artist yeah. so it's important that this is like the the moment you arrive like it's, it's just like makes no sense in a stereotypical way mm-hmm. uh when you Uh, go dive into the details a little bit mm-hmm. just like you get more confused mm-hmm. and that is the confusion that we can rather call diversity in that sense you know not like the, the confusion that we can call diversity mm-hmm. yes yeah, you know. and Antino Achebe by the way again the same author that I quoted he calls this uh, the space that the space of middle ground and it is something that within the Igbo cosmology that there is a foreground as a background but there's a middle ground and that middle ground is a is a messy workshop 
That's what he calls it. It's where everything, you know, just plays out. Spectacle, everything, messiness, the, you know. It's totally cacophony that when we tried a certain, like for instance, silent university events, that you would have five languages involved, people simultaneously translating to each other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's so hard to even have like a direct conversation. It's just like, it might even appear as impossible to do this simultaneous five, six languages translation mm -hmm. but so liberating mm -hmm. it is so next level mm -hmm. way of imagining the knowledge exchange mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know the things you learn if you think in multiple we talked about this you know languages not only reading everything translated to one single language or mm -hmm. everything in that language or having romantic relationship with people speaking only that native language mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all your life like how can you understand <laughs> yeah <laughs> it needs to be difficult it needs to be complex you need to yeah you need we need to learn you know even having those kind of relationship with people who don't speak, speak or native language, language yeah. even not so yeah Thank you very much. This has been a very, very, very beautiful and informative conversation, Ahmed. I'm glad to have had it with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for really uh, triggering questions. No, thank, thank you, you yeah. for accepting <laughs> to do this, even at a very, very Always. short notice. Huh? Always. Yeah. Always. Thank you very much. And for our listeners, you've heard it all. If you've made it to this point in the podcast, thank you for being with us. You can check out the podcast at ngatapodcast.com, but also Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and all the important podcast platform out there and you can also leave a message no not message comment on uh, your most preferred uh, platform and let us make it a conversation if you want to support the project check out our patreon page ngatapodcast.com slash patreon that's it thank you very much and see you in the next episode bye bye